0: Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Laurie R. King about her latest novel, Back to the Garden. Laurie R. King is perhaps best known as the author of a series of books featuring Mary Russell and her partner-slash-husband, Sherlock Holmes. Indeed, I interviewed her about that series back in 2013, not long after the release of Garment of Shadows, the 12th Russell Holmes mystery. But she has also written other books, historical and contemporary, series and standalones. Back to the Garden uses a dual-timeline format to counterpose a present-day investigation to events that unfolded 50 years earlier. The juxtaposition of past and present proves to be a particularly compelling presentation for this long-buried, quote, cold-case, unquote, murder. The novel begins in the 1970s. Then... Southern Oregon. The man in the dripping army poncho paused to shove back his hood and stand, head cocked, trying to make out the half-heard sound. A minute later, a car came into view, half a mile or so down the hill, a big white Pontiac, struggling to keep on the road. The man leaned on his shovel, judging the contest between the treacherous surface, the way up to the commune was unpaved, rutted, steep and slick with the endless rain, and the determined car, which obviously had good tires. The car slithered and flirted with disaster, but managed to avoid going off the edge or getting bogged down in the section where the culvert had washed out last month. When it came to the end of the clear section and vanished behind the trees, the man bent over to shake the rain from his long hair and beard, like a dog coming out of a river, then slopped the last shovelfuls of mud from the block ditch before walking down to see what the invader wanted. And now, please join me in welcoming Laurie R. King. Hi, Laurie. I look forward to talking with you again. Hi, Carolyn. People who would like to hear more about Russell and Holmes can do that by listening to our earlier conversation, which they can find by searching for your name at newbooksnetwork.com. As I mentioned in my introduction, a standalone contemporary is certainly not a departure for you. But what inspired this particular story?
1: Oh, I think a lot of us changed plans uh, when when the world closed in on us, didn't didn't we? Um, all that all that travel that I had on my books of oh well, I need to research the next Russell and Holmes in France and south of France and Paris and no, not so much. So I started looking at some other ideas that I'd kind of been playing with, including I always wanted to write a book set in my youth of the 60s or 70s, because, you know, it's really an interesting time and it's more or less historical now. I mean, they sort of I'm I'm amused when reviewers and such categorize Back to the Garden as as being historical because, hey, I I was there. That can't be that historical. Right. So um, but I, I wanted to write. One of those interesting two-timeline books of a cold case, and that's, that's where it came from, is a modern-day investigator with the San Francisco Police Department named Raquel Lang, and her investigation of bones that turn up that came from the 1970s.
0: I have to phrase this question carefully to avoid giving away too much. Um, Who are the man in the army poncho and his visitor? They certainly don't seem to move in the same world. (laughs) Yeah, the the uh,
1: it's always a it's always a puzzle with a writer whether or not to put in a prologue. I mean, it's usually a distraction. On the other hand, it's occasionally really necessary. And I decided that a prologue here was one of those necessary bits because without it, you, you aren't told where the focus is on the stories that you're coming across because there's two or three chapters that are brief, that are the main characters, that are, um, you know, they're related, but you don't find out how. But I wanted to have something that shows this is what we're headed towards. And and so that's what the prologue, that's the function the prologue serves here. So that both of the characters that you see in there are the then timeline, which is the 1970s. Um, the man in the army poncho is a Vietnam vet named uh, R- Rob Gardner, and the uh, <laughs> the the man who appears in his um, in his very very muddy front driveway is a poor young lawyer from California uh, named Jerry who is sent up to tell him that, that uh, his grandfather has died. So the the two of them are indeed from different worlds.
0: That prologue ends with a great line. Uh, as the old bastard finally died, uh, we turn the page and immediately flip forward into the present with another great line. The day had been going so well until the bones turned up. We'll get back to the old bastard in a moment, (laughs) but give us a context for the bones. Who is Jen and where is she when the bones are found?
1: The bones are found, and we have
0: to tread carefully here without spoilers. Um,
1: The bones are found when an estate that is open to the public, a garden and and, um, manor house that is open to the public in Northern California. Is doing some renovation work on a on an oversized statue that was put up during the seventies, during the then timeline, and at when it is when it is shifted in order to repair the foundations, um, there are bones. So that's that's where they come from.
0: Well, that certainly would ruin anyone's day. I think. Um, who is Jen?
1: Jen is the. Uh, is the manager of this estate, the Gardner Estate on the San Francisco Peninsula. She's a woman who lived in the neighborhood when she was growing up. She knew the area when she was a kid and she's been hired to um, to put the estate in some kind of order, and to, which is particularly tough during and after the COVID times because things are shut. And so, um this is this is when the world is starting to open up again uh, without i don't I don't know that it gives a specific year for that now timeline, but it's roughly now so
0: that's who that's who Jen is. So we have a beautiful arboretum nearby uh, where my husband and I like to go walk um, over on the weekends. And so that's sort of my mental image of the Gardner Estate. But how would you describe the estate itself?
1: It is, for those who know the San Francisco Peninsula, the Gardener Estate is roughly very, very loosely based on Filoli. Um, Filoli is a... A manor house that was built in the twenties and thirties. Um, it has a formal garden. It has land around it. Um, it and it's kind of lo- located roughly where uh, where the gardener, the fictional gardener estate is. But it's not that the house, the gardens, the land are different. They I, this is a fictionalization, but it's kind of that thing. It's a big house that was built by people, um, the the Gardner family, who wanted a place to entertain uh, the important folks of both California and the United States um, in their bid to become important forces in the political and artistic world of the 30s and 40s and 50s. So that's that's what the estate is now. In the book, now it is a, a open to the public, and you can see the gardens and so forth.
0: And you mentioned that the bones are found under a statue, um, so I won't ask you more about that. But uh, the statue is in the book. Um, have. Uh, the creation of a woman named Miriam Gado, and there's a wonderful line about her menacing feminist phase. Uh, I'm assuming <laughs> in my artistic historical ignorance that Miriam Gatto is a fictional character., uh, what inspired her?
1: yeah, and, and and unfortunately her her original name in the book was somebody who actually was an artist, so I had to change it from Dado to uh, to Gatto. <laughs> um, yeah, she. I wanted, I wanted somebody who who was the kind of in-your-face feminist um, that you would find in that period. I mean, uh, Judy Chicago's uh, work, and the, I don't know if you know the Guerrilla Girls, Guerrilla G-E-U-R. Um, they were sort of feminist collective artists who did a lot of um, a lot of politically tinged work. In the, in this time period, but there were so many so many male bad boys of the time that I wanted this this one to be the female equivalent bad boy. So that's that's who Miriam Gado is.
0: And what is her menacing feminist phase? I mean, how does she express it in art? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I I think I think we've all seen. Um, Art by people that is de- definitely intended to offend. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, there's there's nothing like a, a a cow cut in half and suspended in formaldehyde to make you sort of rear back from the display, is there? And there's a lot of stuff that uh, that especially men would be really really menaced by, and that's. What Miriam Gado is known for in this book is um, you know things that are that are in your face female with no no apologies.
0: <laughs> yes, I have to tell you that the the tripartite statue that is at the center of the story, and I don't know if you want to go into that or if that's something you'd like readers to find out um. It certainly stopped me in my tracks. I was like, oh, my God, I'd have nightmares about this thing. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, you know, there's, there's three-faced gods from India. Um, there are some three-faced goddesses, but they're not as well known as the three-faced god. And each one of those faces has to do with a divine attribute of creation and life and destruction. And so Miriam Gado in this her, this sculpture of hers has these three faces, but because of circumstances, it has had the menacing, the, the threatening, the death side of the statue facing out um, for all these years, and, and nobody quite realizes what the back two faces look like because they're they're growing up right next to a, a very tall hedge. So that's part of the revelation of the thing. When, when they move the face, not only did the bones come to light, but the other two faces come to light.
0: So I think we should probably leave that there um, because it does become important uh, as we go forward. So after we've uh, we've encountered Jen and the estate. We next meet an old man who's on the brink of death, uh, shackled to a hospital bed, and Inspector Raquel Lang, whom you mentioned, who is staring at a wall hung with four and a half by 11 inch photographs. Uh, this is still in Chapter 2, so we're not giving away spoilers yet. Um, so do please tell us a bit about the photographs and what they mean to Raquel, and I'll leave it to you to decide how much you want listeners to hear about the old man.
1: Well, the old man... I- think you 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 know you discover fairly early on that he is um, a suspect in the murders of these women whose photographs Raquel Lang is looking at um and Lang is an interesting character because she's (laughs) if I do say so myself (laughs) she's um she's Very cold and analytical, and yet she is moved by these victims um, in, in a very profound way and becomes extremely committed to finding out whether this man that they suspect has done it or whether it's someone else, and whether they're the bones under that statue that came to light. So that's the central the central plot of the book there. But it, as you say, chapter two, I mean, it's not giving an awful lot away. It's in the public excerpt on my webpage. page. <laughs> no surprises.
0: So tell us more about Raquel. As you say, she's a very interesting character. I found her quite compelling. Um, and she has quite a history of her own as a detective. So introduce her to us and explain how she ended up in the cold cases department.
1: Yeah, and I it's... It's one of those areas that I don't want to step too firmly into because spoilers, but you gradually get the idea that that Raquel has a considerable backstory that may or may not have an impact on how she works um, and what she's doing in the cold cases department. But she has um, <coughs> she has been seconded to the cold case unit because of an injury, apparently. She's using a cane when we first meet her. And um, Jen, who whose eyes you see her first through, thinks that it might not be a, a permanent um, part of her, the cane, but more a temporary, that is from an injury rather than a, a long-term thing. And... Um, and she, she has become part of the cold case unit while her injury is getting better and while some kind of thing is going on in the background to decide her future. But again, without getting into that too much. Uh, so, so that's what she's doing in cold cases. She's fairly new to it, but, it's, uh, but it's, it's something that she's quite
0: suited to. I was thinking more of her personality, her particular skills as a detective.
1: Well, oh, she's as I said, she's, she's pretty cold and analytical. Um, in some ways, she's kind of a modern-day Sherlock Holmes in that she is much more interested in the problem than in the people around it.
0: Um,
1: her, her mind sees details that other people don't. And that's not always conducive to close friendships with other people around her. <laughs> um, and, and so that's, you know, I mean, she has, she has friends, she has family, but
0: not a lot of them.
1: And I think that's fairly apparent from the first time you see her.
0: Yes, it really is. So let's um, move on to the gardeners. And here I'm just asking you to give us like character sketches of them, uh, just so people know who they are uh, without going into the details of the plot. So let's start with the old bastard. Uh, Who was he, and what did he do to acquire this epithet? (laughs) Well,
1: he was something of a bastard. Um, Yeah, this is... There are four generations of Thaddeus Gardeners, um, the first, the second, the third, and the fourth. Um, The first was the one who kind of started the family, who definitely started the family fortune and somewhat started the family estate. But the second one, Thaddeus Gardner II, was finished the estate, uh, married a woman who had a lot of ambition. Um, uh, no, no, he, his mother had a lot of ambition. And the two of them set up so that his son would become a political force. And the problem was that his son was not interested in being a political force. So the Thaddeus Gardner II, it's, it's all clear in the book, I think. <laughs> Thaddeus Gardner II um focuses his, his uh, attention and his determination to become a political force on his two grandsons, who are, that is, Gardner IV, who is known as Fort, and Rob Gardner, who you meet in the first chapter of the book, though not necessarily by, by name other than through Jerry's mouth. But um, he he is not a friendly person. He is not um, a warm and grandfatherly sort of person. He is someone that um, creates a lot of a lot of turmoil and pushback from his his grandsons and um, and so they 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 just flat out call him the old bastard.
0: So how does Rob come to host a hippie commune at the family estate? This is one of the really fun parts of the book <sighs> yeah
1: yeah yeah it was it was it's 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 fun to write the that kind of thing um, Rob Gardner comes back from Vietnam in nineteen seventy two um he ends up on a hippie commune in Oregon in the mid seventies when he inherits the estate he makes it into a commune with his Oregon commune. They move south, and that's that's the sort of basis of the community that has set up there. Um, he, he has, a, I, I mean, I, I think you like Rob Gardner. He's obviously got problems, but he's somebody that his, um, his, his fellows on the commune generally like him, although they don't necessarily approve of him because he comes from money. Um, so well, he's, you know, he's obviously got issues, but you figure that um, his heart is in the right place, maybe. <laughs> so, um, so that's 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 Rob.
0: And for those of us uh, not of our generation who may not have a clear sense of what a uh, hippie commune was like, can you give them a quick description of life at this particular commune?
1: really interesting that the seventies were this this kind of interim period, weren't they? The in the sixties under the impetus of the war in Vietnam you had this this widespread movement of rejecting all the things that the establishment valued, so that you know <laughs> the normal jobs, um, <laughs> jobs with benefits, <laughs> retirement pay, all the things that you look for now, were were too were too be put in a, in a heap and burned. Um, anti-war, back to the earth, uh, natural. all all the rest of it. And the 60s were also a time when the pill became available. So sex was something that was accessible for people without as many consequences. And AIDS was not a thing yet. So you had this period where it was natural to, to be open and free. So all of these things came together and people decided that they wanted to change how, how the world worked. They wanted to embrace the things that really mattered, um, the earth, each other, um, preserving the natural way. And we, we had this back-to-the-earth movement where we, we from top to bottom, reconsidered values. And reconsidered what was really important, so for a few years you had these these communes that sprang up where everything was held communally um, and where people tried to be responsible towards each other and towards the earth and of course many of them just fell apart because you 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 have human nature and there is there's always somebody who knows how to do something, period, and doesn't, doesn't want to do it the way others want to. You also have questions about how you raise your kids, and that was a big part of why communes tended to drift away, because, you know, what are, what are my personal responsibilities towards my children as opposed to the commune's responsibilities towards them? And often that was different. So um, you had this period in the 70s where all the communal living experiments that had sprung up all over, and especially on the West Coast, in California and Oregon and such, um, were re-examining how they could keep it together, and you know the realities of money and drugs and children and responsibilities and <laughs> growing your own food is not easy, um, we're, were making them question whether this was really the way to do it. So, you see the commune in, in this book, in that stage of, here's this lovely back-to-the-earth family that has these goals and ideals and... Uh, and wants to do things the right way, coming up nose to nose with the reality of who owns what
0: and how do you
1: how do you vote on how it's controlled? So, so. But yeah, the the, the communes were in for a lovely time, but um, they they weren't they weren't exactly
0: realistic. <laughs> no, <laughs> as has been repeatedly discovered throughout history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know yeah. it's hard to control people who are less inclined to work or more inclined to work, or people who get jealous, or oh, people who want their kids to have a full education, which they don't have the skills to give them, and all of that—that that kind of thing. I mean, the, those, all,
1: all of those, all of those questions enter into the the, the story. Is and you know, what what do we do? What what are the you know the the two parents of of the three kids? You know what. Are they supposed to turn their kids' future over to people who are more interested in smoking dope in the, in the trailers?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So several of the commune members do emerge as distinct personalities, uh, Meadow in particular. Could you tell us a bit about her as a personality?
1: <laughs> oh, I love Meadow. She she had such fun with Meadow. <clears throat> yeah, Me, Meadow is, I think... I think it it describes her in there as something like um, a a hippie Earth Mother with the political skills of a Chicago mayor. Yes, <laughs> because like like I said, you know, human human nature differs, and skills and abilities and preferences differ, and someone who moved in a commune in the mid seventies might have been a a, a woman executive with the, remember the shoulder, the padded shoulder, um, the shoulder pads that were popular in the eighties. You know, that, that was, that was what, what feminists were doing in the eighties was moving into the boardroom. And, And of course they, they thought they might, but they ended up taking notes and bringing coffee. But you know, that's another story. But um, but Meadow is one of those whose abilities and um, and way of dealing with things make her a, a leader, even in a group that denies that anyone should lead. Um, so you know, it's one of those ironies of of a group of people is that. Sure. Theoretically, in a commune, everyone has equal word, but in fact, you always have someone who, who actually does things,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's Meadow. That is Meadow. I love Meadow too. Uh, I thought she was a great addition to the story. Annabelle is another person in the commune who eventually captures Raquel's interest. Uh, what can you tell us about her?
1: Well, again. In a commune, you're going to have lost souls, um, and and Annabelle is one of those. She shows up because she's pregnant. She's been thrown out by her her conservative family, and she becomes a part of the commune. But she's, you know, she's she's the sort of person that everyone feels that they should protect because she she doesn't she doesn't have much sense and much. Um, <laughs> much sense of self-preservation, <clears throat> but she's obviously a sweetie, and everyone sort of shelters her and takes care of her small son and, and the rest of it so she's she is the voice of the the other kind of the other part of the commune um, that you know Me- Meadow is one of those people who get stuff done and Annabelle is one of those people who wanders around and and is given a job
0: to do and happily does it <laughs> well you can't be a captain if you don't have uh, people to do your bidding so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> she need, she needs Meadow yeah. and Meadow needs her
1: <laughs> and then you have people you know like <laughs> like you have this one, this kind of pothead who wanders around, and he's actually still around in the in the now part of it. Um, who's, you know, Raquel has to agree that he's obviously someone who sort of took too many heavy duty substances back in the day, and and he just kind of wanders around and doesn't get much done, but is functioning sort of.
0: <laughs> so I don't want to push you into areas where you're not comfortable giving away information. So I'll ask you, are there other characters or incidents that you would especially like listeners to hear about?
1: Well, you know, one of the things, uh, I,
0: other than these ones that we've been talking about,
1: one of the things I really, really liked about this book, and one of the reasons I said it in the 70s rather than the 60s, was that I could do the now sections of it in modern day, and have a bunch of people with gray hair who were nonetheless less, um, <laughs> you know, really interesting, vibrant, active people. I, I, I don't know about you, but my hair is pretty gray. But the people that I know who are in their 70s and 80s
0: <clears throat> are
1: all extremely on their feet and active. We have aches and pains, but um, we're very far from finished with life. And I, I wanted to bring some of those in. So you have some of them who are there as witnesses, some of them who are there as suspects. Um, and and I, I liked being able to work with um, my generation, both in the past and in the present, so, I think um, you know the the books that have old people as being Miss Marple knitting and thinking about things i, I don't I don't know too many miss Marples. <laughs> I, you know, the eighty year olds I know um, run three days a week up in the hills, and that's that's the kind of eighty year olds that you'll find in, in in this story.
0: What would you like people to take away from back to the garden? <laughs>
1: it's always I mean, it's, a, it's always a question, isn't it of um what what do you take away from any story? And I think that the the author is probably the last person to know what impact a story is going to have on people. Um, I like to think that people will find something entertaining, and i I, I like I like to think that. Back to the garden, and all of its characters are just that. But I also like to play with ideas that are, um, you know, that are more or less between the lines. Because the kinds of novels, especially mystery novels, crime novels, that that feel like they're they're written standing on a soapbox preaching, they don't appeal to me. I, I, I find I tend not to finish them. But I love the ones that are, that have a subversive thread to them. And I love it when I can work in the kinds of ideas that, <clears throat> that get in there. One of those, and in, in this is, the idea of, in this day and age of, you know, Defunding the police and re- reallocating city and government funds are are we justified in spending police money on looking at a crime that is half, half a century old and oh, you know the the amount of impact that's going to have if, for example, you find an 80-year-old is guilty of this, what difference is that going to make if he's in a hospital bed, for example, and he's dying, or if he's in his 80s and um, and by the time any trial is finished, he won't have that much left of his life. What, what difference does it make to spend money on a cold case? And I think that's... No, that's something that is interesting to me as a as a as a challenge with the writer is making the characters important enough to a reader that that they say yes, of course it matters, even if they couldn't say exactly why. But you know, there's a lot of other things that go on in the book. That's just one of those interesting little um, tidbits that I think about when I'm reading something like this.
0: That's a really interesting point, though. I'm glad that you raised it. Um, the author's note at the back says that you're currently working on Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes' 18th adventure. I guess this is the one that got delayed uh, because of COVID. Can you drop us a few hints about that? Is that progressing now?
1: Um, it's. I'm doing the research uh, for it. I'm doing the, the background, not
0: the travel research, but the book
1: research. And I think it's going to, going to incorporate about um, the backstory of Sherlock Holmes himself. And if you think about Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes character, you don't know anything about it, really. You know that he has a brother, you kind of are vaguely aware that he has a family because he comes from a you know, c- country squire, as it he calls them. Um, his grandmother was the sister of the artist Renee. He doesn't even say which artist for nay and there's four generations of them <laughs> so I'm I'm playing with some interesting ideas for that well, I look
0: forward to reading That's that as far as it's, I think I think it'll be fun and will we see Raquel Lang again someday because I'd love to make oh, her reacquaintance. Yes, yes
1: yes oh good I'm yes, glad yes, to hear that I'm, I'm already playing with ideas for that the next um, so Back to the Garden is out in September of 2022. The next Russell and Holmes will be out in February of 2024, so 15 months on. So the 2025 book will be another Rochelle Lang.
0: Well, there's nothing like planning ahead. So that's great.
1: <laughs> you know, it's really weird, isn't it? You think, and it's you get, you, you make these dates on your calendar and you think I can't even think of what the world is going to look like in <laughs> 2025 <Right. laughs> especially the way things
0: have been going my gosh <laughs> I,
1: I know, would you have thought three years ago that what we look like today
0: <laughs> no, not in the least well thank you so much for sharing your time with us Laurie it's been a pleasure
1: okay. so it's been a joy I, I wish you all kinds of good readings and,
0: and have a have a lovely year And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm CP Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Laurie R. King about Back to the Garden. Find out more about her at laurierking.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.